Want to learn what sets LiveFlow apart from thousands of other QuickBooks Online apps? Do you want to learn how LiveFlow saves time for hundreds of accountants and bookkeepers? Want to learn how LiveFlow helps accountants and bookkeepers to use LiveFlow successfully in their firm? Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, LiveFlow, later in the episode. At a certain point, the lack of enforcement is a problem for the accounting profession. And people don't see the value in what we do because they know they're not going to get audited or they feel like they're never going to get audited because the odds are extremely, extremely low. They're so low. Coming to you weekly from the OnPay Recording Studio, this is the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. And I just realized we need to update that bumper, David. We, we got to uh, update the video. We got to update what I say. We got <laughs> so many updates. <laughs> well, we have, we, I think it's a year, but we'll get it done eventually. We'll get all this rebranded. We had two options. We could have done the classic rebrand where you do all the work and then you unveil it. And, you know, that's it. It's all done. But we're not that organized to get that together. So we're doing it slowly. Um, well, even if so, you do that, it's very hard. I mean, for years, you're finding the old stuff. Right. So, you know, it's a, it's a soft launch of the accounting podcast, the accounting podcast, as we like to say. And then I don't even know how fast we want to rebrand it over because we, we went with the transitional logo. where we, we just took a red Sharpie and crossed out the word cloud <laughs> until we settle on what the new logo going forward will be. Maybe we have a contest yep. and the people vote. We, have, we don't know. But – we're going to have to rebrand again, so I think we have to. Well, well we it'll be a full rebrand. It'll just be a logo rebrand at that and point. I, I'm, I'm thinking maybe new, maybe new music is in order. That might be necessary. New logo. New uh, shirts. New shirts, yep. New stickers, yes. Well, David, uh, today we are talking about the ROI of IRS audits and FedNow's payment network that is launching in July. Those are our two top stories. But first, I was thinking we could get to some listener mail. We haven't talked about listener mail in a while. We haven't read listener mail in a while. Jump in. This is a tweet from Steven. He said a while back, hey, Blake, I appreciate all of your work regarding the 150-hour rule and trying to shake up the current accounting model. One additional thought slash concern I had, which I don't know if you've mentioned, relates to accounting standards and compliance. I'm all for these things in concept, but in practice... These things are onerous to abide by and can only be sustained when you have an adequate number of people to know and document them. To me, when I look at an audit report, it, it's accountants talking to each other and holding ourselves accountable. Clients are just checking a box. We try to say, let's show value, but for us to do all of our backend work, we rarely have time to do that value-added work and audits, for example, remain commoditized. Anyway, thank you. Thank you, Stephen. And I think you have a great point. Audits are commoditized, and that is the root problem of our talent crisis in the accounting profession. If you really dig down to it, it's the fact that two-thirds of grads go into audit, and every audit is essentially the same. It's essentially the same to the end user, to that client that needs to get the audit done. Now, you might argue, you might say, well, an audit by BDO is not an audit by Deloitte. But among firms of a certain class... It is really the same, right? Nobody can tell the difference between – nobody cares. No investor cares about like the Nobody's difference. delivering additional value, innovation around the audit. Uh, you're buying you an know. opinion, right? That's what you're buying, yeah, right? You just, they're, need they're, to, you just need to get through it. There's no creativity around it. It's, it's all just delivered. Like you said, it's a commodity. It's an orange It's orange juice. 
how could we increase the value of audit? Well, we could make it less of a commodity, make audit reports different. And one thing I like to throw out there is this idea of making audits more like restaurant health inspections, where instead of pass-fail, you get a grade. What if auditors gave A's, B's, C's, D's, E's, F's, whatever kind of grading system you want to use, every city has a different one, but that health inspector report is right there in the window of every restaurant, and you, as the consumer, get to make the decision of whether or not you're going to eat there. And some people are okay with a B. Some people are only A's. I'm only going to eat at a restaurant that gets an A. I think there's a lot that we could do to increase the value of audit just by making audit reports more useful to investors. And I think one way they tried to do that in the past recently was with this critical audit matter concept. We talked about that when in the case of SVB, Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah. And the problem with critical audit matters is that it's still up to the auditor's discretion as to whether or not to include those. And the auditors are paid by the client, so they don't want to issue critical audit matters. So, so like this whole hitting them with a stick at the PCAOB doesn't work. It doesn't get them to actually like do more valuable audits because what in the end they're selling is not an opinion and the client pays the auditors. So like the way we could do it, big picture, right, is we change it so that clients don't pay their auditors and they don't select them, that some other organization selects the auditor and pays the auditor. So the auditors are no longer beholden to the clients for the fees. And then yeah. we make it more discretionary as to you know what is included in that audit opinion. And we, we actually create like a grading system for audits. So that like the quality of financial statements has a grade associated with it. I think that would be fascinating. I would love to read audit opinions. Or like if the board members had to pay for the audit separately and it wasn't the company paying, the board members might, they'd value the audit differently, right? And they would, they would want to feel, maybe, I don't know, maybe board members don't care. Well, it's, so right now it's the audit committee, which consists yeah. of the board, board yeah. that selects and pays the auditors. I mean, they pay it out of the you know company funds, right? But but the problem, I think, is that like in a lot of public companies, the board is not aligned with the actual real investors, like the the the, the, the you and me, David. Investors. Yeah, because yeah. they have for them, any bad news is going to hurt their existing investment they're sitting on. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So auditors, if they want to, if we want auditors to be truly independent, they need to be selected and paid by somebody else. So anyway, enough on that. Let's get to another message. Let's see. This is this is from David. David said, Hi, Blake. My name is David. I'm an auditor at a Canadian national firm out of Ottawa. I've been listening to the podcast for a few months now and have had your article, Our Obsession with Ours is Destroying the Accounting Profession, saved with the intention of reaching out. Simply put, I'd love to get more detail on what you've brainstormed as tangible metrics to replace billable hours as the dominant metric for individual performance in firms. My mentor, who is a partner at the firm, is very supportive and open-minded to new ways of working and thinking. We both agree that billables are antiquated, so I've been brainstorming how I could beta test an alternative to billables as a way to move the needle ever so slightly in a positive direction. Thanks for your insights, David. So I'm, I'm excited that he's got the buy-in from his partner at the firm to come up with an alternative metric to billable hours. And this is always the biggest barrier, I think, to dropping it is like, what do we replace it with? Well, I think the the, the key there he said, right, and if I, you read this, the, he was asking, how do you measure individuals if you get rid of the billable right. hour? And I mean, that's like, why are we using that as a measure of effectiveness and success to begin with, 
right? There's lots of different ways, like surveys, you could uh, audit people's work. There's so lots here, of different ways to measure somebody's ability and skills. Yeah. So you mentioned surveys, right? That would be client satisfaction surveys. I think that's a great thing to be doing. And so you could, you know, we all get those surveys after we have a customer service experience and it asks you like, how did it go? You know, how, how was it working with Blake at the firm? Like, did you have a good experience, right? I, I, when we just, we're, David, we're filing our taxes with TurboTax uh, full service and we are documenting this whole thing and we're gonna release that as a video. So stay tuned on our YouTube channel to, to hear our experience, to see our experience. So I just finished that yesterday and I got a survey immediately asking, how did it go? Like, would you recommend us to a, a friend or a colleague? How was the interactions with your agent? All of this stuff. That's one way. And I'm sure that's how TurboTax is measuring that agent. Yeah. That's right. And uh, another one would be um, team collaboration. So survey the team, right? So survey other employees at your firm to make sure that they are happy with each other. So is the employee, is the staff person getting good feedback from clients, but also from the team? Revenue generation. So instead of allocating hours to a staff person, allocate revenue if possible. You know, if, if you assign clients and, or returns or whatever to particular staff, you could assign revenue numbers. And there's different ways to break that out, right? If you've got people collaborating on a client, you could do a formula or something like that. That's one way. Or don't focus on the individuals. Like a team. I've always had a problem with that in general. Like focus yeah. on the entire output of the company, the one firm view, the yeah. one firm success. You're going to have not everybody performing perfectly equally. And, and what chances are you're going to quickly know without having all these measurement tools who's somebody maybe you have to get rid of or, or ease out of your firm, right, from an employee standpoint. Yep. But like, set the goals so the team is just all worried about the entire company, firm's goals and not their own individual. Like, like, who yep. cares if that guy has more hours than the other guy? You want the whole firm's goals to raise. Yeah. It doesn't... I proposed, uh, when I was at the large firm, a pods method of allocating revenue where we would have groups of three to five staff working on client engagements, and that group would be assigned clients. They could service the clients among them themselves, right, that pod, and then we would allocate revenue to each pod, and the pod had a certain goal of revenue, and if they hit that goal, they all got their bonus. That was never adopted, unfortunately. But I, I would love to see it in practice. I, I liked how Intuit years ago kind of flipped the model to, because Intuit had all these separate business units. And you want to have an ecosystem. And the QuickBooks VPs bonuses were based on TurboTax success. And TurboTax VPs, their bonuses were based on QuickBooks success, right? They should be helping each other, mm -hmm. like raise that bar. And yep. that's the same type of thing. Like we talked about this before, like if you control the bookkeeping – in theory, your tax returns are smoother in tax season. And so maybe the bookkeeping division is completely, the cash division is completely bonused based on the performance of the tax division, right? Because hope the tax division should be ultra efficient if you're doing all the cash work correctly. Yeah. Right? And that's, that's the problem with siloing and measuring these departments by their individual performances. Like it, it, the client is doing, if the client is serviced by both bookkeeping and tax, that's what you should be looking at as a whole, yeah. not individually. Yeah. Um, another big one, another way to measure staff outside of billable hours is jobs completed on time. So that could be your monthly engagements. When did the financials get out? It could be tax returns. Like when did the tax return get filed? Like did it get done on time or not? Professional development, 
Are they getting certifications? Are they completing their CPE? That sort of thing. Quality of work. I think quality of work matters a lot that we don't measure that in firms a lot of the time. You could give a quality score at every return when it's done. Like when whoever's reviewing it gives a quality score. And then individual goals. Like let the employee set some of their own goals and measure them based on that. I think like a lot of the problem is a lack of trust in firms. God, I saw, I can't believe this is real, but I feel like it must be. I saw on, on social media somewhere, some young, some, some like staff accountant posted that their firm is in lieu of like sending everyone back to the office. They're going to have everyone sit on a Microsoft Teams call all day long for eight hours and share their screen. <laughs> Can you imagine how awful that would be? And this is a firm? Yeah. Everybody in the firm on a Microsoft Teams call for eight hours sharing their screen. That's how you're going to so monitor employees. Working. Yeah, we'll talk about a lack of trust there, right? Wow. Yeah. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by LiveFlow. Think about this. If you have approximately 60 clients and create five reports a month for each of them, that's over 3,500 reports a year. And let's say you're really fast and it only takes you one minute per report. That's almost 2.5 days a year you spend creating reports. Here are a few of the ways LiveFlow saves time for so many accountants and bookkeepers. Once you create the perfect suite of reports for a client, you can just copy the Google Sheet, use LiveFlow to connect it to a different client's QuickBooks Online company, and you're all done. The new reports will pull in the data for the second client automatically. You can easily drill down on the details of each number on a live flow report, including drilling down to the transaction level to navigate directly to the transaction inside of QuickBooks Online. No more opening QuickBooks Online to search for specific transactions. Live flow and Google Sheets are in the cloud, so you don't have to waste time emailing files between your team and your clients. And you can give your clients access to a suite of reports that they can access anytime, eliminating one-off requests for you and your staff. To learn more about using LiveFlow and how you can save 20% off your first three months, Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash liveflow. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash L-I-V-E-F-L-O-W. Stop manually updating your spreadsheets with Liveflow. Let's see, what else? Any voicemails? No voicemails. I'm just catching up on all the uh, emails here. Emails. Okay, here's a good one. Maybe we'll get some um, of our live listeners interested in answering this question. I could probably use your help. This is, this is controversial. David and Blake, should I choose the CPA or EA? What are your thoughts behind this, especially with possible hours changes and I'm already $60,000 in debt with student loans? I want to be honest. I don't want to do either one, but due to the need in our industry, the passion I have for our industry and the direction that it seems to be going, I want to be heading in the right direction. I do already have my bachelor's, so I would have to complete my master's in order to obtain the CPA license in my state of Florida. Also, due to me being a young female, although I'm almost 40 with almost 20 years in the field I'm working in, I don't seem to be taken as seriously as men in the industry, and I think having an additional designation would help boost my bookkeeping and CFO business. I feel that I would be great at audit, but it's not something that I plan to do. Right now, my bookkeeping firm that does pretty much just the data entry, financial accounting basics, starting to head more into CFO type roles, and then eventually possibly tax accounting if I choose to sit for one of the exams. I hate to admit it, but one of the reasons that I have chosen to go towards tax is because I've realized that there are a lot of lazy tax accountants, bad tax accountants, and it seems that a lot of tax accountants don't really look at the details. I'm talking CPAs, EAs, 
and no designated tax accountants. I work with them all in my type of business, but I'm learning there's a very different culture in the smaller firms and how they do business and the advice they give. I'm sure I have a lot to learn, but it absolutely bothers me that they miss vital information and don't ask questions, and I know this because I actually talk to my clients. Obviously, you can't tell me which way to go, EA versus CPA. However, I would like to hear your input based on the current conditions of the industry, with the industry projecting itself to be AI and other aspects that you guys may be privy to that I may not be. I've started listening to your podcast probably the past few months. It's literally my favorite out of all the accounting podcasts that I listen to. I appreciate what you guys do and any input you can give so I can try to make a final decision. That's from Courtney. So obviously, like, we're we're not advisors here, but, like, based on what she's saying, she already has a bookkeeping cast-type practice already. She's flirting a little bit with, like, virtual CFO services. Yep. So I look at EA work and tax work as, like, providing a full umbrella of services for a small business owner. And it's very realistic for you to do business returns for small businesses. But if you have a cast division, you're doing quick bookkeeping work, is adding on audit work a service you can fit into that framework for the customers you're doing well, bookkeeping work for? Like, you, you can't do it because you got the conflict of interest. So you kind of got to decide. I mean, yeah. it's the independence problem, right? So... If you're going to do bookkeeping and CFO work, you know, financial accounting work, you don't, you can't do audit. So that rules out yeah. that. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, unless yeah. you make your firm ridiculously big and yeah. Emily in the live stream says, neither do the CMA much more valuable these days, especially if looking towards CFO slash advisory. I've heard great things about the CMA. I have also heard, uh, on the other hand, that it focuses a lot on cost accounting. And depending on your clientele, that may not be helpful. So look at what exactly the CMA encompasses, I would say. Um, Sam says, if she has done CFO work, or if she does CFO work, an EA doesn't add much to that. What if she starts with the EA designation and then starts, and then works on adding the CMA after that? So I think, David, where you were going was saying like, well, the tax, adding the tax is actually very valuable, Right. Like and we, I guess I'm thinking about her her business, not yeah. so much her. Maybe is where my brain's at. Okay, so I had a bookkeeping accounting business. We didn't do any tax, and part of the reason that I merged with a CPA firm that did a lot of tax was because I knew we were leaving a ton of money on the table. Because when you combine bookkeeping and tax, and you provide the whole solution end to end, you can charge a lot more. So, adding the tax is smart if you can do it without ruining your life. So probably the best thing to do would be to partner with somebody who already does a lot of tax and doesn't do a lot of bookkeeping and create that unified firm. Maybe the EA would be good to have so that you understand the big picture of what is happening on the tax team and how to advise those clients. It's also pretty low lift compared to the CPA. You don't have to go back to school. You can just take the three exams. Like I did part one of the EA and it was just a lot of studying. It's, it was good. I like learned a lot about individual tax from that exam. So I, I would say it's very valuable. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, the biggest problem with the CPA is just like having to go back to school to take all those classes you didn't take maybe. Like that, that's the biggest barrier, right? The fifth year. And then the cash to yeah. do that, yeah. I would say, like, if there wasn't that fifth year, then, yeah, go take the exam because the brand of the CPA is super valuable 
in terms of like respect. And like Courtney said, as a female in accounting, you don't get a lot of respect. And I know personally, you know, not being female, but having added as a male who added CPA to the end of my name, it really helped a lot in terms of respect from clients. The brand is excellent. Romeo said, how many 1040 clients actually need bookkeeping though? I would say that a lot of 1040 clients would happily pass off the bookkeeping for their Schedule C if it was cost-effective. But you have to roll that into the tax return fee and make it all one price. Yeah. And so charge monthly or quarterly for all of the bookkeeping and advisory work and then throw in the tax return. So don't charge for the tax return. The tax return is free as long as you're a client of the firm. And that shifts people's thinking because then they're not comparing you to the price of the tax return down the street because you're offering bookkeeping and advisory, whatever you want to call advisory, however you define it. But you have a huge advantage then. Like I was just talking with a friend from college who he's been the CEO of several startups and now he's starting an executive coaching business. And I'm sure he's going to be making really good money from his executive coaching business. He's not going to have a ton of transactions every month. Is it worth his time to do all the bookkeeping and accounting? I'm sure if it was a couple hundred bucks a month, he would happily hand it off. And think about that. A couple hundred bucks a month over the course of a year is $2,400. How much effort does it actually take to code five to 10 transactions a month or something like that? Not very much, right? So you're looking at a pretty good price as a preparer, maybe you charge a little more. I don't know. I was just out. It's, it's crazy what, what firms are charging now for tax returns, David. I was just out at a dinner with uh, Giles Pearson and Jeremy Eckert. Do you know, remember Giles? I know Giles show. very well. Yeah. yeah. Founder of, uh, or CEO of Account Tests. And um, I got to meet Jeremy on a hike and, and at this dinner recently. And Jeremy's a small firm owner here in the Phoenix area out in Peoria. And he was saying that they get referrals from larger firms that have set their minimum now at $10,000 for a return. This is why I got fired. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. So TurboTax is charging $1,500 for a full service business. So let's say that's the floor. It really should be the floor. You shouldn't be charging less than Intuit is charging for their full service. Yeah. Right? So 1500 is the floor. And let's say if you're a small firm, 10K is the ceiling. You got a lot of wiggle room in there. Or even it, if you want to go undercut into it, you should be charging 1400 bucks. <laughs> like you can still say, look, we're cheaper than Intuit, but don't, but you're right. Like you, you and I mean, I've it, seen this. I, yeah. I, I don't know. I went to a, you know, these multi use small, but these offices suites, right? Yeah. You know, there's multi, there's a dentist, there's a counselor, there's all these people. And I walked by the one accounting firm. I should take a photo of this, their door. They had a little flyer on the door and like returns are 160 bucks. Like, I don't have what? Any, yeah. The, For an individual like return? sixty bucks. Yeah. yeah individual I, returns. I, and I know there's, there's folks out there preparing business returns for like, you know, under a thousand dollars. Yeah. There's a lot. And, and the market is saying you can charge more and you can especially charge more if you're doing the year round, talking with the client, helping them out, you know, helping them with their bookkeeping. Maybe they're doing the bookkeeping, but you're just checking in every now and then. Like, there's a lot you can be doing. 
So it sounds like if you do the ROI on this, getting the EA and adding tax to her practice might be more valuable than just getting the CPA letters. Unless she wants to work, have bosses and be in a career, but... So, yeah, the CPA is valuable, yeah. but it's so time-consuming. It's really hard to get as a firm owner. It took me, like, five years because I was working the whole time. It just takes forever and the exams and all that. So as much as I hate to say it, I think the short-term benefit would be, yeah, add the EA, add tax. But, I mean, you don't even need to get the EA because if you just partner with somebody who does tax, then you could run that business as a business owner and don't get sucked into all the tax stuff. I think that's the problem, too. And that's the... That's the real risk of like getting into. Or encourage that. your somebody on your staff to, yeah, tying both emails together. You know, encourage somebody in your staff to become an EA. All right, next next item out of the mailbag here. I'm catching up. This is good. William said, "Just started listening to the podcast. Very relevant and easy to understand for someone like me who is entering my senior year, graduating with an accounting degree. Would love to see if you can give advice for young professionals." I understand that may not be in the scope of your podcast. Questions like how to discuss salary for entry-level staff accountant positions and asking for appropriate compensation. You guys talk about the starting salary issue. Any advice on how it would be suited for recent graduates to talk about this? You also mentioned that computer science slash technology-related jobs will hire at a higher starting salary. As I heard from CS students from my school, I wish firms would do that as well because as a future accountant, we know we will have to work hard and bring our best value to the table. I completely understand that firm partners hesitate to pay generously for beginners, but as an employer, not offering a competitive starting salary can be discouraging. It can seem like the eagerness of a young, eager, and curious accountant like me will not be fairly rewarded, and it can be discouraging. Anyway, your podcast is intriguing, and I find it has no fluff or useless talk. You guys talk about current issues that make the profession fun to hear about. Accounting can be fun. Thanks, William. Thanks for writing in, and, and congrats on getting to your senior year. I guess you're entering your senior year, so you're looking for work. And I, I think the my thing is it's way more than a salary negotiation. Like you're better off now negotiating how many hours you're going to work. <laughs> like, like that's going to be way more beneficial to you than what the salary is. But I think the big thing is too many undergrads – are signing letters of intent to go work for firms their junior year. Yeah. Or, you're, or you're, you know, they're signing end – of, end of accounting 101, people are signing internship commitments for the end of their – for the summer of their sophomore year. Like they're they're getting you when you're so young and naive and and then they're, they're filling their funnel. Like there's no – like if they're getting you to commit to a salary your junior year – like make make the firm sweat. Nobody should none no college student should be signing any commitment letters at all. Let them chase you in the free market when you graduate. Like the the jobs will still be there. It's not like they're going to get filled up by somebody else. Mm. Like, like yeah, that's like, a good point. Don't commit so soon. Yeah, there's a reason they want to lock you in that early, right? Yeah, because you're a junior at college. You're like sounds like great. Maybe forty thousand dollars a year. Like this is this is like the best. <laughs> Right. Right. Romeo says, I'm in the same boat as the asker. I somewhat regret not starting a job immediately after graduation, but there's seriously no way I would knock out the four exams with a full-time job. Yeah. I was trying to do it while you're working. Like, I mean, I wasn't working at a firm, but I had my own firm and trying to do that, trying to work at the same time as doing the exams was so insanely difficult. And I didn't even have a kid yet. 
Romeo says, I had a junior year internship. I hardly remember it. And they hounded me for another internship a month before graduation. Oh. All right, David. Uh, that's all the mail that I've got in the mailbag. Oh, no, one more. So somebody wrote in and said that they saw AI inside of QBO. And I forwarded that to you. What were they talking about? Was that about? QBO or was that MailChimp? Well, so it looked like it was... Like Now MailChimp and QBO are starting to mix together. So on the customer's screen, there's a button that says Automated Lead Responder Beta. And if you click on that, it takes you to MailChimp. And it can draft you emails to your QuickBooks customers in MailChimp. Yeah, because QuickBooks is in a way is, is graying that CRM, especially for the accountant's edition. That becomes a CRM for your firm. Mm-hmm. Right, all your clients are in there, and it's time back to MailChimp. And I think if you're in the QuickBooks account edition, you get free-ish MailChimp. Don't, I don't, don't know how it works. I, I, I think you do now. I think you get free access to MailChimp or some level of MailChimp. Anyway, Todd, um, thank you for forwarding us that screenshot. And if any of you see AI cropping up inside of the products you're using, please let us know. We want to we see them in the wild. It's not just theory anymore. This episode of the Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Accountess. Have you ever hired a team member whose actual accounting ability fell far short of what they claimed on their resume or in the interview? If so, you've experienced the frustration, disruption, and financial cost of a bad hire. Don't gamble with a new hire. Test their knowledge before you hire with Accountess. Accountest offers a suite of technical knowledge and personality tests designed by accountants so accounting firms can learn if job candidates truly meet your requirements. Send an online test to a job candidate, and when they finish, you'll get a report about the candidate's accounting skills and working styles instantly so you can make offers ahead of the competition. Accountest has tests for all levels of accounting, tax, and bookkeeping candidates, be it a CPA, EA, staff accountant, bookkeeper, intern, or recent college graduate. When you're ready to test a candidate's knowledge with Accountest and get 50% off your first test by using code TAP50, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash accounttest. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash A-C-C-O-U-N-T-E-S-T-S. David, do you want to talk about FedNow or do you want to talk yeah. about the ROI of IRS audits? We teased those two stories in the title of this episode, so we had better talk about them. So we'll talk about FedNow. So we'll work backwards a little bit, right? If you think about- Remind um, me. Yeah. What is FedNow? Yeah. So FedNow is the Federal Reserve's payment network. So it's going to repl- think of it as a replacement for ACH. But is it going to replace ACH? Well, not everything's going to replace everything, but it could. A big chunk of it could. Replace so, ACH. So, so right now the banks run ACH, right? Or it's well, like so 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 ACH is like all bank, and, but it's a level playing field. All banks get to participate in ACH. Mm-hmm. It's standards. It's, it's what 1972 technology. It's reliable, but it's a little. It's so like it's QuickBooks days, Desktop. Right? It still works. It's three Great. days. You know, your bank has a day. The ACH bank or the ACH network has a day. Then the receiving bank has a day. So it takes three days for ACH money to move around. But they've speeded that up, right? Well, not really. So the bigger banks got into bed and they created the RTP network. So that's real-time payments. So think like Zelle. You know, like like Zelle works if you're at Bank of America and Chase. Yeah. But if you're at some credit union or a small regional bank, you can't use Zelle to send money. They're, they didn't invite everybody else to the game. So got the it. Federal Reserve has created the Fed now. And it's going to allow all these banks that got left out of the payments game 
to move money around on these rails. And mm. it's going to enable instant payments. So this is rolling out in July. Yes. And it has AP. So, the, so you're going to see this flood of credit unions uh, offer this to their clients to do peer-to-peer style payments. You're going to see apps use this. So it has APIs built on top of it. And the way it works, they're really thinking this is going to be huge in small business because it's, in, it's going to be instant payments. And the way it works, it's not like currently in the ACH system, you can set up like auto pull, right? I can auto debit money from you, Blake, out of your account. Right. The way this works, because it's a little bit more secure and uh, a little bit more protected, there's this concept of a wallet. Like, right? a, like a blockchain wallet? Well, I wouldn't say like that. So I have to request from you money. So Blake, I need $300 for this bill I'm sending you, whatever, right? And then you approve it, and then the money comes out. So I don't have access directly to your bank account numbers to pull that money out. It's almost like there's a, a wallet in the way, you know, to okay. some extent. But it's going to probably really enable a lot of instant payments, and it's going to be so, really popular with businesses. Okay, in so, fact, there's, so I'm sorry, I got to stop you on this wallet concept, because yeah. that sounds really great to me, because one of the problems with ACH is if you give somebody your account routing number, and then you later change banks, now you have to go and give your account and routing number. You have to change that everywhere. So is this wallet address going to act as like a middleman? So I no longer have to do that? I can just change my... But you can connect any bank on the back end? That I don't know. Because that would be that fantastic, but, right? Because but then there I, are ties yeah. of these conversations, though, to the whole... You know, remember we're talking about before they want to have the post office kind of be a bank and everybody gets their mm-hmm. their account. So, like when they distributed PPP funds, they just want to sh- shove that money right into people's bank accounts or their FedNow account, right? But but the payments rails for FedNow are officially coming out. So right? the Federal Reserve Bank is going to run this stuff. Like they're going to oversee the technology. Yes. Okay. And this opens so, it up to all these other banks because it wasn't. But are the big banks? Payments. Are the big banks going to participate? Well, the big banks have their own right. real-time payment. So why network. would they participate they in this They probably one? will because, because there's APIs, apps are starting to do it. So one of the app news I have is there a, there's an app called uh, Forward AI. and There's a company called Forward AI. They launched a new product called Forwardly. And basically what Forwardly is currently doing, it offers instant payments. So you could have payments with your clients instantly using the RTP network. But they said they are going to support the FedNow service on its launch in July, which basically opens it up to 10,000 additional banks. Hmm. And that, that's really the key of the FedNow. It's, you're going to have instant payments now truly happening because everybody's going to be on the FedNow network. And so you're going to see apps. I, I have zero doubt your Bill.coms, your Melios, like everybody's going to be using FedNow to move money. So this could be the end of ACH. How much is it going to cost? Or a big chunk of ACH, a big chunk. So, and they're saying anything under five hundred thousand dollars is probably going to go through these this network. Yeah, and it's a lot cheaper. So, it's instant payments for cheaper. And yeah. how much does it cost? I think the fees are going to be. I don't know how much the Fed's charging the apps to use the APIs to do this, but then the apps determine the fees. Really. Right, but I mean the Fe- the Fed got to charge like per, is it per transaction? Is it percentage? Like how how does it actually? That I don't know. How, how that's happening. Okay. Maybe so my, they just want to collect data. So my story this week is from the Washington Post. How much did Congress lose by defunding the IRS? Way more than we thought. And the thing that 
really stuck out to me is this chart here that you can see on the screen if you're in our live stream. If you're listening on the podcast, I will do my best to describe it. The chart is titled, How Much the IRS Gets Back for Each Dollar It Spends Auditing. And this is for in-person audits from 2010 to 2014. And on the chart, we've got income percentiles going down on the left to the poor, the fifth percentile, all the way up to the 99.9% on the right, the rich, as the Washington Post has described them. And what you see is that at the midpoint, the IRS gets just slightly more than $1 back for every dollar it spends on audits, on in-person audits. So it's like breaking even slightly, like making a tiny bit extra. Below that, actually, most of the time, they, they, they lose money on auditing. They don't get as much back, like the middle class, right? Well, that makes sense because they're auditing poor people. Yeah. So that's a lot of, a lot of labor to, to gain nothing. And the only pl- time when they make money on audits of poor people is usually with these, uh, you know, like earned income tax credits, child tax credits, all this stuff that's kind of easy to abuse. At like yeah, a, if there's a lot of fraud. Somebody claims yeah, they have 15 yeah, yeah. kids and they go there. You only have one kid. Yeah. Now, as you go up the income percentile, it gets much better and you approach, you know, $2 at the top. And then, but but for the 99.9%, they make back over $6 for every dollar invested in audits. So you, you invest a dollar in auditing taxpayers. We're talking the, the 0.1%, top, you know, 0.1%. You get six dollars back, and that point one percent. I'm just trying to like put this into real dollars. Remember with the um, the new legislation, they're saying we're not going to audit anybody under four hundred thousand dollars, right, or as much. Yeah, we're not going to increase those audits. Do you think that this actually helped determine that magic number? Of, I mean, it makes like sense. An efficiency thing. Well, I think the number was determined based on politics. Politics, not anything. But 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 this justifies that, right? This idea that. You get way more back investing in audits of the ultra wealthy, like which totally makes sense, doesn't it? You would think that like people who can avoid tax, evade tax, because they can take advantage of all of the loopholes or rules or whatever you want to call them, right? You're going to get more back when you audit them. So, so anyway, the based Washington- on this, I would also be arguing we should be auditing every single return. Well, the, uh, the audit every single return of the top. Point one percent. Yeah, it probably makes sense, right? I mean, if you could. The problem is that the IRS has not had the experienced agents required to do these audits because of the complexity. They're losing those folks, and they haven't been replacing them. And so, you know, the Washington Post article, of course, makes the political argument that taking the twenty billion dollars out of the IRS's eighty billion, you know, the that was cut, right? So the IRS got the $80 billion over the next 10 years. The Republicans negotiated taking $20 billion back. They said, okay, well, that's actually six times bigger than you think because, right, that would have been a, right, six times $20 billion ROI. That's a good way to present it. Right? Yep. Now, now, we know on this show that's not true because the IRS doesn't have the resources or cap- capability to hire to spend all of the billions of yep. dollars anyway, Right. But it, it's an interesting thought experiment. So there's some more charts in here. The cost per audit for the bottom 5% is $5,100. The cost per audit for the top 0.1% is $15,000. So it's about three times as expensive. But the revenue collected per audit, uh, you can see this chart wow. going up and to the right. Ridiculous. Yeah, it's like a, it's a hockey stick kind of chart. So you've got the cost down here on the 
on the the bottom, which is going up, you know, three times. But then you've got the revenue collected goes up. I mean, it's like you're talking a this, few thousand dollars up to ni- over $90,000 per audit. They should have. This is how the IRS could fill these positions. You get a chunk of the action. <laughs> oh, you like get 30% incentivized. of what you recover. Because they, they have enough elbow room in here to go to a free IRS. You get 30% of what you collect. And you'll you'll figure it out. Look like, at some, look some very it. wealthy. I don't know. I don't know about. I mean, I'd have to think about the uh, issues that might cause. But it's a. It's, you know, I like. I like. I like the way you're thinking, David. I like innovative compensation strategies. Yeah, incentivizing based on revenue collected. Uh, hopefully, they wouldn't abuse their powers if they did that. Right? You have to somehow adjust for that. So yeah, that's how you get to this chart that says for each dollar spent on auditing, you know the the top 0.1%, you get $6 back. And the IRS's return on investment for the bottom 50% is only uh, $0.96 cents on the dollar. So by that logic, right, you should not increase audits on anyone in the bottom 50% of income. Yeah, because we're spending $1,500 to... We're losing money. But somebody for, for, for uh, you know, falsely claiming 1400 bucks. Yeah. yeah, you're spending $5,000 to audit somebody... Who, who and you're not going to get five thousand dollars back, right? And and the other thing I truly probably believe is most the other ninety nine percent is the bucket of honest Americans probably that <laughs> they're paranoid of getting audited, right? The marketing's really well. Most right? most Americans are very honest. Like yeah. s- studies show that most the vast majority of Americans are honest on their taxes, and so like you should be investing the money, not auditing all those folks, but audit the people who you know. Are abusing the system. Or run the IRS as a business. Like if you were managing a business, you would be. It's such an easy decision, right? Think about it that way. So the chart also shows. Um, okay, so I said for the bottom fifty percent, you get ninety six cents for every dollar you spend. So you lose a little bit of money. You're losing four percent of your investment if you look at it that way. And then for the top one percent, you get three dollars and eighteen cents back for every dollar invested. So three x your investment. In the top point one percent, you get six dollars and twenty nine cents. For every dollar you invest, isn't it funny how like none of this makes it into the mainstream news? Like nobody's talking about this. Nobody looks at the numbers these ways. And you know, um, I kn- I know that like most CPAs are conservative, and they have somewhat of an adversarial relationship with the IRS. If you're representing clients, like you don't want the IRS to have more resources, right? That's been sort of the general feeling for years and years. Is is we want to defend our clients, right? We don't want the IRS going after our clients. But zoom out big picture and like more audits of high net worth individuals, extremely high net worth individuals, we're talking people making millions and billions of dollars, would be great for the accounting profession because they would need us to defend them. And they would need us to come up with legal strategies yeah. and they wouldn't be falling victim to all of these, you know, ERC mills that are able to do what they do because nobody's auditing these people, right? Like it's, it's at a certain point, the lack of enforcement is a problem for the accounting profession. And people don't see the value in what we do because they know they're not going to get audited or they feel like they're never going to get audited because the odds are extremely, extremely low. They're so low. Even if you follow that TikTok tax advice. Yeah. And and so still safe. You, you want to know why they don't value what we do? Because IRS audits of millionaires 
have declined from about 9% of returns before 2008 to less than 2% of returns in 2020. Yeah, because if the IRS was auditing more people, people would be like, oh, man, I my ducks buttoned up. I'm going to pay my accountant more to make sure my stuff's together because yeah. I don't want to get audited. But if there's no fear of an audit, why would I want to pay an accountant? I'll just, I'll just use TurboTax. Yeah. Well, or or I'll just, I, you know, I'll do sloppy bookkeeping, you know. I'll do it myself. I, I, yeah, exactly, right? Like, the, I mean, we're why, talking about, why? here we're talking about people with more than a million dollars in income. I doubt they're doing it themselves. Yes. But right? but I mean, like, but but the, why would you pay a premium to your accountant if there's no fear of being audited? Like, exactly. what's the value? Right. 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 That's That's what hurts us. So if audits are too low, the profession loses value. What we do loses value because there's no fear. Yeah. So the accountants should be wanting to fund the IRS to create that fear, stoke the fear. So we've gone from, you know, 9 to 12% audits down to 1.8% audits for those with more than a million dollars in income. For all individual taxpayers, it's 0.3%. So... 0.3%. We're not talking 3%. It's not 3 in 100. It's 3 in 1,000. That's really low. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Client Hub. We've been talking about the lack of accountants lately, and I'm guessing you may have your own shortage this busy season. And with accounting teams spending more than 30% of their time chasing clients for information, Client Hub can help you gain one third of a body just by getting needed information from clients quickly. Client Hub automatically sends your clients a task for each expense or deposit marked as uncategorized in QuickBooks. Your client then can respond via their simple web experience or even their highly rated mobile app. Your team will save hours of time and the best part that it's free. Introducing the free Client Hub recategorization plan. Client Hub is bringing the freemium business model to accounting apps. They're so confident that you, your team, and your clients will love the free recategorize plan that it will lead you to implement all the features of the award-winning Client Hub into your firm's workflows and communications. Using Client Hub in your workflow is a guaranteed ROI, especially since it's free. To get Client Hub's new recategorize plan for free, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash client hub. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-L-I-E-N-T-H-U-B. So we can transition from that to the uh, the UK's Tax Payment and Customs Authority. So uh, we've probably talked about it, we've probably heard about it, making tax digital. Yeah, I've heard about yeah, making okay. tax digital. Yeah, yeah. yeah, making tax digital. So and that, that's, that's, from that's the in, H- the, in the UK. The UK, that's all, the HMRC. Yeah, all of, everybody has to file. Well, explain to me the, the making tax yeah. digital. Get so, again. so actually, I put in the private chat a tweet I did in 2017 or 2018. If you pull that up, well, I... Check this out. So the HMRC, we should acknowledge this at first. It used to be her Majesty Revenue and Customs, and now it is now his Majesty Revenue and Customs because now there's a king, right? The queen has passed, and now there's a king, so they've had to rebrand that. Um, but I also noticed they've, they've rebranded it, and they tend to just say HM, Revenue and Customs. They've mm-hmm. kind of pulled back the tide of the crown a little bit on that. But if you go to that tweet, we were at QuickBooks Connect, I think, in 2018, and they brought in at that time – uh, for lack of better terms, the CEO of this division, right? And they were launching Making Tax Digital, and it felt like a startup pitch, right, of the hottest tech investment, hottest tech company ever, you know, and it was 
it was very grandiose. And, and the vision is every single thing you do is going to be filed electronically. We're going to have APIs. We're going to have this. And, you know, all your sales tax, your VAT tax, right, is all going to be electronic. Everything. But this really starts to add up in cost. And what's happened now, they've hired, started having reports coming out because there's been so many costs and delays. I think originally they wanted to have this out in 2020. Mm-hmm. It's now expected to cost the government $1.3 billion, five times the original forecast. But then the businesses themselves, the original forecast was only going to cost a biz- – I'm sorry, I meant to say uh, pounds. Um, but for each business itself, they estimated at first it was going to cost each business 330 pounds. And now the reality is probably going to cost each business 1,000 pounds. So to the cost change of your systems, right? Yeah. To change your systems to become electronic, to file these things. And now they're also having problems with um, just the execution and the way it's been rolled out. For example, in a single year, transferring VAT records into the, their new systems created errors totaling more than the MTD is expected to generate by 2033, 2034. So the, the volume dollar figure of the errors that were put into the system last year, this new electronic system, are the total of what they expect the revenues to be until basically the next decade, 2033, 2034. Well, so like, it's, it's like canceling mess. it all like, out? It's like a big mess. Like, <laughs> like it's not like – it, they built the system and it's just been poorly executed. Oh, no. This goes back to remember the, the whole California payroll system or with the California accounting system that they're replacing, right, from scratch or that payroll system up in Canada. These government yeah. rules. And this is what scares me about let's just rebuild the IRS, Right, like from scratch. Well, the, the, it'll never happen. It'll never get out the door and never work. Well, I don't think that's quite fair, David, because <laughs> this is trying to change an existing agency, try to modernize something that's yes. been in place forever, and, and we see how that well that works. Right? It's it's almost impossible once the bureaucrats are entrenched, whether yeah. they're in government or they're in a technology company. It's impossible to change. So the only way to actually make a change is to disrupt. And it might be an outside disruptor or you create your own disruptor. So that's why I've advocated for, I don't know if I've said this on the show, but you know, I like to talk about this idea of like create an IRS 2.0, create yeah. a new parallel IRS. On yeah. the side. And, and then allow a subset of taxpayers to opt in to the new agency, which is completely started from scratch. Like if you started the IRS all over again, what would it be like if you had a new revenue service? Like, that's the way to do it. Create a disruptor and say, you know, if you've got a 1040, an easy 1040, you can file with this agency instead of this one. And you gradually move everything over, right? And you shut down the old one. I think that would be the way, that's the way, that's the only way to do it. Otherwise, you've got all these people in there that just, they suck the life out of everything. You know, there's just, there's just people in this world who all they want to do is collect a paycheck and, um, they don't really care. They don't really care that everything sucks. <laughs> you know, like they've got, they got no, they got, they, and they hold everything up. Like th- those people, you can't, you can't change those people, right? I mean, you need, you need people like that out there, like making, I guess, making the cogs of the world turn, but they're not going to innovate. They're going to, they're going to disrupt themselves. Well, even, even if everybody's on board, everybody's on board, nobody's, nobody's, um, we had two. I used to call them innovation antibodies, right? Yeah. Like, like if the innovation antibodies don't even exist, we've all done this. You integrate two apps together, 
and like data gets posted wrong in your QuickBooks, yeah, right? Yeah. Now imagine you're going to take electronic data from thousands of different apps and try to get them into one system correctly. Yeah. Good luck. Like, like, have, like good luck. That's the reality. So we've managed to talk about like two stories in this episode and I have got, I don't know how many. Can we talk a little bit about remote work before we go? We talked yeah, about it at the that. beginning a little bit, right? Um, so did I did I say that my wife's company is is doing a you know they're big like Fortune. They might be Fortune ten. I don't know. Giant not company. not not on air, but I think you've talked to me okay. a little bit. So they're all they're doing a return to office, right? Everybody's trying to get people back to the office. I feel like this has been going on now for like years. And and you know so, so she's been working it. She got she got hired remotely, and now she might have to go to an office, and. The thing that's crazy about it is that her team is not in that office. They're all over the country. So they might all have to go back to the office just to dial into Microsoft Teams calls from their cubicles in the offices. I, I, I used to hate when I go up to the Bay Area and I go to the Intuit campus. Yeah. And it's like 20 buildings spread out. And I travel all over the Bay Area. And then I'd be in a conference room. And nobody actually in Mountain View is in the conference room. They're all throwing desks, dialing in through a Zoom call. I'm like, this is crazy. Like, why do I travel over here if we're not going to do face-to-face? Uh, so, uh, you know, Elon Musk is the, the anti-remote work. He's the anti-body to remote work. He hates remote work. And, and ever since he said it, I've been wanting to talk about this quote. He said that remote work – where is his quote? Morally wrong. Yeah, he called remote work morally wrong – and like I just I hate I hate the fact that such a brilliant guy is so wrong about this issue, right? <laughs> I, do we have a j- slightly jaded or different view? I mean, I've worked remotely for a very very long time, but I also don't think it's for everybody. It's not for everybody. No, I think it's a small percentage at best. But ten percent can handle it. He called remote work morally wrong bullshit. He said it's morally wrong. For remote workers to work from home while others, such as those preparing and delivering food, cannot. He said he compared remote work to a let-them-eat-cake scenario and said that the laptop classes are living in la-la land. He believes that remote workers need to, quote, get off the goddamn moral high horse with the work-from-home bullshit because they're asking everyone else to not work from home while they do. I mean— I can see his classic or his classist argument. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Yeah, it's not fair. It isn't fair. But, but like— I feel like the whole return to office thing, like the the reason all these managers want to bring everyone back to the office is because they suck at managing. Yeah. Like like they haven't bothered to learn how to manage people in a way other than, you know, walking around. Well, then if you work from home and you're not driving, you don't need an electric car to drive to places. So yeah, so it's very self-serving, right? Very self-serving. And then the last time, you know, even if he's going to be on his high horse about elitism, I haven't seen him on a Southwest flight ever. Like, <laughs> Come fly with the rest of us, Elon. Oh, yeah. Commute with the rest of us, right? The yeah. hour-long commutes. And it's crazy because all the studies show that people work more when they work from home. Hey, Heather. Heather Smith is on the live stream. She says, early morning hello from Australia, 3.30 a.m. here. Wow. Thanks for joining us, Heather. Bright and early. I mean, there's not even any – it's not even bright. It's just early. <laughs> Still the middle of the night. Great to I- have you with us. I have a fun app uh, app news story you might want to find interesting. All right, let's maybe. do it. Uh, so I put a link in to this website. So ESG accounting startup OmniView secures $3.0 in seed funding. 
And what caught my eye is they, hey, they rebranded. They used to be called ESG Gen, but they basically refer to themselves as the QuickBooks for ESG. They're, they're basically like a London-based uh, software engine you know, providing you know, ESG accounting. And you know, they, they believe like they're going to be the go-to credit bureau for non-financial and ESG data. So their website, you know, they have all the buzzwords everywhere. But they're about to launch something that I just read and I'm like, this is so dumb and such bullshit. I'll read the sentence here. OmniView is soon to launch a fully automated real-time business CO2E estimator tool called View CO2E. You know, it's in CO2 carbon, right? Allowing UK and EU businesses to view and report their CO2E impacts securely by connecting their bank account for less than five pounds a month. So basically, they're going to use bank feeds to figure out your CO2 output. This is it's, just, it's such bullshit. It's bullshit. <laughs> it is. It is total bullshit. And then they have a whole accounting page because they want to get accounting firms to like add these services as a value add, right? To to your oh for your God. clients. Can, can we just can we just focus on doing like good financial reporting before we get obsessed with ESG? Like, yeah, because it's just going to be more shit done wrong, right? Here. Yeah, well, and we're just adding more stuff to the financial statements. Silicon Valley Bank's financial statements before they collapsed, right? Their their annual. 2022 report was 180 pages and the most important piece of information that would have helped us figure out whether they were going to collapse or not was like a footnote like a tiny line (laughs) you know like simplify we need to we need to reduce complexity not introduce more complexity and esg is just apps will do these apps are gonna esg is just the it's just the distraction you know it's just it's because we can't fix accounting standards and make them more useful, we're going to go off and do this other thing now. We'll create new standards you create for new standards. something else. We're really good at creating more accounting standards. We're not very good at, like, creating, like, simplifying accounting standards. And we don't, you know, as a profession, when was the last time we advocated for tax simplification, which is desperately needed? Yeah. I mean, we, we've or, always viewed tax complexity as a good thing, but you get to a certain point and it becomes too much and it destroys our lives as tax professionals. Or, or where's the uh, the regulations on, you know, and you've talked about this before, like how many hours a firm runs, right? Like, yeah. like every firm would fail ESG scores, right? Because one part of that is your governance and your how you treat your employees, right? It should be. But, you know, we can define ESG however we want, so we won't, we won't <laughs> count that. Heather has some news from Australia for us. On 15th June... Zero Australia announced price increases. These are the third price increases in two years. Noting one of those price increases was due to a delay at the start of the pandemic, so it got squished into two years. Okay, so three price increases in two years. Is that typical? Like, does Intuit do that here, David? I think they usually just do it annually, right? At most? It's about every 18 months, it feels okay. like. That's the, the cadence. So but, to, I, but I've never heard of them like, oh, we skipped a year, so we're going to double up. So to counter that, on June 16th, Intuit Australia sent an email to their partners offering partners $2.50 per month on any plan for two years. This is a direct offer only to partners. Wow, that is insanely cheap. I thought I saw a tweet today go by. So Intuit Accountants, QuickBooks Accountants Edition, like the global version or something, is offering for global customers like a dollar a month subscriptions or something. A dollar a month. <laughs> this is like dumping. I mean, is this even legal? Like, can you, you know? Like, but, you know. But, but then again, like, what's zero cost in the States compared to QuickBooks? I know, right? Actually, yeah. it's it's insanely 
I mean, some of the plans can be like $2, $8 if you're a partner, right? That's what makes it a great deal. It's like if you, if you get all your clients on, on zero, especially the smaller ones, you know, it's like the price difference is insane. But if you're in first place, you, can, but you it's, raise the prices. It's so funny how it's completely flipped. Here in the United States, you got zero undercutting QuickBooks. And over in Australia and New Zealand, it's complete opposite. Josh, hey, Josh, Josh McGowan's on the live stream, and he says, huge congrats on the 1 million downloads and the rebrand. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. We really appreciate that. Um, yeah, 1 million downloads. It was a big milestone, and now we are at The Accounting Podcast. Hopefully hopefully our listeners will enjoy the, uh, I don't know, the, I, I don't think our coverage is going to change that much. All no, because we... We already We've been done doing it, right? this coverage for two and a half years. We so, haven't changed much. Like, it's really just finally keeping the title catch up know, to what the hell we've been doing. But but names matter. And I found yes, that actually yes. since we've changed the name, I've been thinking about it differently. Like the way I look for stories now, I'm looking for more broad stories. You know, tax, audit, accounting. Tech is there. It's still there, but it's like one, you know, one leg on the stool. All right. And yeah, we're touching politics. We're touching a little bit of everything. A little bit of everything. So, but so. next week, I have news. I'm going to be in Atlanta, and I will be recording the podcast, the accounting podcast, from actually the OnPay studios. I'm going to be going into the OnPay office, to rec- and I'll record the podcast there. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so you'll be in the physical OnPay recording studio. That's awesome. Yes. Well, uh, we'll look forward to that. If people want to track you down online, David, where should they do that? I'm just on all the socials at David Leary. I'm at Blake T. Oliver. Our new handle for the Cloud Accounting Podcast, which is now the Accounting Podcast, is simply at ACCT Pod. At ACCT Pod. We haven't changed our email address yet, but we will. At, for the moment, you can email us at cloudaccountingpodcast at earmarkcpe.com. Send us your thoughts, send us your voicemails. We play voicemails on the air, and we love hearing from our listeners. Send us your stories like Heather did on the price increases that Zero recently did. Yeah. And we didn't do anything dangerous to the feed. All, all the important pipes we didn't change because we're too scared it might break something. Yeah, we can't change but our we, RSS feed. That's the yeah. – that would break everything. Um, it's so very scary. We might – we might the RSS feed, which no, it's all behind the scenes, so nobody ever sees that, but it might be the Cloud Accounting Podcast forever, and that'll be the one thing that stays. Yeah. And everybody should check out Blake wrote a really good article on the Intuit um, Intuit Accountants Firm of the Future blog uh, about rethinking the 150 hour requirement. Um, yeah, I think it, it's, it's some of it. Obviously, if you listen to the show, you're going to hear Blake's opinions on. But it's a little different take because Blake ties it back to it's really about diversity. It is. It's about getting getting. You know, I'm a career changer, and I'm fortunate where I've had lots of financial resources in my life, where I could go off and be a music major and totally screw up <laughs> my undergrad. <laughs> from a like ROI perspective, but still be able to like, you know, redo it. And so like I was in the classes with all these people who were also career changers who didn't have that. And like so many of them dropped out. This was in LA too. So it was like an incredibly diverse class and they would have made awesome CPAs. But like the only people who made it were the ones like me who had a lot of financial resources. I mean, not the only ones. There were people who really hustled who did it, but so many, I would say like 80, 90% of our starting group didn't make it just couldn't get to the finish line just yeah too much. it's while you're working to take all the classes for an accounting major basically and then to sit for the cpa exams like it's really freaking hard so if we want to get people into the profession who are career changers and people who are from 
disadvantaged backgrounds economically, we got to make it easier. And that doesn't mean reducing the quality. Okay, we're just reducing the red tape. It's not yeah. about lowering the bar. It's that the bar doesn't make any sense. So, and maybe the bar goes up because there's maybe very high quality, super smart people that just don't have the financial means. Yeah, to I, I would say if you if you have a problem with reducing the education requirement and you think that's lowering the bar, then just make the CPA exam a little harder. There you go. Right, one one lever goes down, the other goes up. All right, David, always great talking to you. Thanks, everyone who tuned in live, and we'll see you here next week. Time for the classifieds. Client Hub automatically sends your clients a task for each expense or deposit marked as uncategorized in QuickBooks. Your team will save hours of time, and the best part, that it's free. Introducing the free Client Hub Recategorized Plan. ClientHub is bringing the freemium business model to accounting apps. They are so confident that you, your team, and your clients will love the free recategorized plan that will lead you to implement all the features of the award-winning ClientHub into your firm's workflows and communications. Using ClientHub in your workflow is a guaranteed ROI, especially since it is free. To schedule your demo, go to clienthub.app. That's clienthub.app. Is it possible to scale your firm while significantly reducing your workload so you can spend more time with your family? That's what Marie Phillips did when she tripled the revenues of her multi-seven-figure firm thanks to Future Firm Accelerate. Designed for busy firm owners, Future Firm Accelerate gives you the system, training, coaching, and the community you need to systemize your firm so that you can scale it while working less. The program is built around founder and CPA Ryan Lozanis' six-part Future Firm framework which he used to scale and sell his own firm, Zen Accounting, to a major international organization in just five short years. To learn more and join over 700 other modern firm owners scaling their businesses, go to www.futurefirmaccelerate.com. That's www.futurefirmaccelerate.com. We don't like uncategorized transactions, but we do like cats, and we love Uncat. Thousands of accountants and bookkeepers have switched from sending spreadsheets of uncategorized transactions to their clients every month to using Uncat. It's easy. Uncat syncs with QuickBooks and gets clients' responses back so fast, you can close the books on time, every time. And you're going to love the price. Uncat is just $5 per month per client. And bonus, start a 14-day free trial at Uncat.com, and they'll send you a $5 Starbucks gift card. Get yours at Uncat.com. Are you tired of spending hours manually adjusting your balance sheet and reconciling your accounts every month? Say hello to NetTracker. Automate tedious tasks such as adjustments for depreciation, prepaid expenses, accruals, and deferred revenue. With just a few clicks, selected balance sheet accounts are updated and reconciled. No more stress and hassle every month. NetTracker makes monthly financial reporting a breeze. Try it now with QuickBooks Online, Zero, or Sage Business Cloud and see how much time and energy you can save. www.nettracker.com That's www.nett-tracker.com. Your accounting clients don't want another shiny app they have to log into. They want to be met where they live in their email inbox. FinDaily does just that. FinDaily automates the communication of key financial data by sending it to your client's inbox daily. Try FinDaily out for free at findaily.io. That's findaily.io. 
Small accounting firms can rarely afford to have a full-time marketing person. Instead, someone on their team gets to wear the marketing hat in addition to their other responsibilities. Without a background in marketing, they struggle to know what to do that will get the best ROI for their efforts. That's why Benchmark Growth started the Marketing Mastermind for Accounting Firms. Your in-house marketing person gets guidance, tools, peer support, and accountability on how to execute an effective marketing strategy. Their newest cohort launches in June. Go to marketingforaccountingfirms.com slash mastermind to learn more. Marketing for Accounting firms.com slash master. Sick of waiting for same-day ACH transfers that stick to bank hours or paying high fees for credit cards? Stop settling with slow payments and say hello to the future of AR with Forwardly, America's first accessible instant payment solution. With Forwardly, accountants in the USA can receive small business payments instantly, 24-7, 365 days a year, manage cash flow, and simplify accounting with automatic reconciliation. With generous partner rewards, ridiculously low fees, and no monthly charge, you can start thinking Forwardly at Forwardly.com. That's Forwardly.com. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.